Good morning, church family. Good to be with you once again to share God's word. At this point in our service, we are going to our great God to hear what he has to say to us from hearing his word preached. So let me pray one more time, and then we'll go ahead and get started. Oh Lord, as we've just sung, you are worthy to be praised with our every thought and deed. And we do pray, O oh Lord, that this time that we go to your word would be a time of praise to you. Use your word in our hearts and our lives this morning to convict us, to correct us, and by your grace change us so that we will look more and more like your son Jesus Christ as a result. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. So the Mona Lisa is one of the most valuable paintings in the entire world. It holds the Guinness Book of World Record for the highest insurance policy on any work of art, which was done at $100 million in 1962, and today is worth over a billion dollars, just in the insurance policy. This painting dates back to the 1500s and was painted by the Italian Renaissance man Leonardo da Vinci. It was acquired by King Francis I, in 1797 and has been on permanent display in the Louvre in, in Paris since then. Songs have been made about the Mona Lisa. Stories have been written about it. It's been depicted in pop culture in so many different ways, but the bulk of its fame comes from the fact that it was stolen in 1911. It was returned in 1914 but this theft of the Mona Lisa was not the only a time that the Mona Lisa would be attacked. In fact, in the 1950s, someone came to the art gallery looking at the painting, and they actually tossed acid at the painting, and they damaged it a bit. In 2009, a woman threw a ceramic cup at the painting because she was angry about the fact that she was not able to get her French citizenship. And just last year, a man disguised himself as a wheelchair-bound woman, went into the museum, threw a piece of cake at the painting in an act of protest. And as he did it, he shouted, think of the earth. We live in an interesting world, don't we? But with something so valuable, something that's worth so much, and that's been attacked so many different times, that begs the question, Who's guarding the Mona Lisa? Who or what is protecting it? In our passage this morning, Paul is going to be instructing his son in the faith, Timothy, through the Holy, and through the Holy Spirit, instructing us about guarding and protecting something far more valuable than any painting, and also gives us instruction about how we can guard the good deposit. So if you haven't done so already, please meet me in the letter of 2 Timothy. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that'll be towards the back of the Bible in the New Testament. That's on page 995. As John mentioned earlier, if you do not have a Bible that you own, we're, you're welcome to take that Bible as a gift from our church to you. We're continuing in this final epistle of Paul written to his son in the faith, Timothy. He's awaiting his death sentence, but he's also awaiting a crown of life that will be given to him because of his following the Lord Jesus Christ. And since he's at the end of his race, at the end of his life, he knows that it's important to encourage Timothy to carry on and press on in the faith. 
So Paul encourages Timothy in the source and substance of their shared faith. He encourages Timothy to remain unashamed of the gospel that they proclaim and to also remain unashamed for the suffering that may come in proclaiming the gospel. But this gospel that they've received, Paul goes on to teach, it's a gospel that must also be guarded as well. With that in mind, follow along with me as I read 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 13. This is God's word. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Pygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. This section of this letter is rooted in this main exhortation of this section of verses that I just read, which is in verse 14, in which Paul says, By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. And with that in mind, we need to first address the question, what is the good deposit? And that phrase, guarding the good deposit, means to preserve something. It means to keep it pure. It means to protect it and keep it for safe keeping. And this charge that, that Paul gave to Timothy was also a similar charge that he gave at the end of 1 Timothy, a letter that was written several years before 2 Timothy. And what he says in chapter 6, verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing that some have swerved from the faith. And then he even continues, if you remember from the previous sermon in, in 2 Timothy 1, verse 12, he talks about this deposit and how it should be guarded, where he says, I am not ashamed. For I know in whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what he has entrusted to me. So this good deposit is the truth. And Paul is teaching that by guarding it, we will keep the faith, and that Timothy will keep the faith. Now, Paul also says that God is the one that will ultimately guard what he has entrusted to him. So Paul's referring to these two main things in this letter when he refers to guarding about what would be entrusted to him. Specifically in verse 8 of chapter 1, he encourages Timothy to not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, nor to be ashamed of, Tim, of Paul as a prisoner. So if we take all that collectively, here's how we can define the good deposit. The good deposit is the gospel the message of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel. The message and the ministry of the gospel. So Paul and Timothy not only received this gospel message, but they also received the gospel ministry. They were called to proclaim the gospel message to others. And as we discussed as we went over the previous passage, all who know the Lord Jesus Christ have been given that same gospel message to proclaim to others. 
So that gospel ministry has also been entrusted to us who know and love the Jesus, know and love the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Here's how Tim Chalice puts it in talking about 2 Timothy. He says, the gospel has been protected and has carried from one generation to the next through the long storied history of the church. And it has been handed in trust to you and to me and to all who believes. We have that same gospel message to guard and God has entrusted us with it. But God has also given us the Holy Spirit to help us guard this glorious, beautiful deposit of the gospel, the gospel message and the gospel ministry. As we talked about previously in 2 Timothy, the Holy Spirit gives us power and love and self-control. That's in verse 7. The Holy Spirit comforts us through all of our suffering and our affliction. And the Holy Spirit gives us the means to guard this good deposit. He's given us the right pattern. And he's given us the right people. With all that in mind, here's the main idea for our time together in God's word, and it's this. The gospel is the good deposit that we must guard with the Holy Spirit's help. The gospel is the good deposit that we must guard with the Holy Spirit's help. And as we walk through this passage this morning, we'll answer the question, how? As we've answered the what, how can we guard the good deposit with the Holy Spirit's help? Two points. Follow the right pattern, and then follow the right people. Follow the right pattern, and follow the right people. We'll start with follow the right pattern. If you look back at verse 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul is starting this section and talking about this pattern that should be followed. He says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. That word there for pattern can also be translated as outline. It implies that someone has gone before and has laid the groundwork of what should be followed. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to Timothy. I've gone before you, I've laid the groundwork, so then you should follow me in my path as I follow Christ. Now, I'm not much of an outdoorsman, and I do love the, the wildlife that we have here in Maryland and all the woods and the trees, etc. I don't know a whole lot about hiking and all that stuff, but here's what I do know. If you're out and you're hiking or you're going on a trail, you need to follow the path that's already been set before you, right? If you start to veer off, like, I wonder what's over here. There's a reason why that's blocked off. There was probably some danger on that road right? And Paul is saying that he has already walked this well-worn path and that Timothy should continue to walk in that path as well. And more than that, Paul has already told him how to walk and he has given him these sound words that he should be listening to and following. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, for example, Paul tells Timothy not to follow those who teach contrary to these sound words of Jesus Christ. Words that cause envy and slander and unrighteousness. He says to Timothy, don't follow those words. But he says to instead pursue righteousness, godliness, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. And then he goes on to say in this verse that these sound words that he should hear and follow are in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
Paul right there is giving Timothy this outline. He's saying, follow on my path that I've given you. So Paul is telling Timothy what to follow, the gospel message, but he's also telling him and showing him how to follow it in faith and in love. And faith and love should be easy to spot amongst the Christians. The Christian faith is one that is rooted in the message of the gospel. That's why the message and getting that message right is so important. But our Christian faith is also rooted in the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who delivers that message to us. And the good news of great joy that was announced to those shepherds was that Jesus was coming to save sinners from their sin. That Christ had to come to this world, and he did come to this world to come in the flesh, to live a perfect life, to eventually go to the cross and die a bloody death to atone for the sins of the world. And that after that death, he would be buried, and then he would rise victoriously from the grave, and he would ascend into heaven, and right now he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. And the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that though we deserve death and hell for our sins and our crimes against God, salvation is available today through the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. We can have eternal life now, forgiveness of our sins now, and eternal life in glory with him forever and ever. That's why the gospel is good news. You have the bad news of our sin but the good news of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's come to offer to all who would turn to him. Friends, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I will ask what pattern or whose pattern are you following? Because you certainly are following someone. And the Bible teaches that there are only two paths. There's the wide path or the wide road that leads to death and the narrow path that leads to life. God is saying, turn from that path. There's death at the end of it. Turn towards my son, Jesus Christ. There's life at the end of it. There's so many people here who would love to talk to you if you have questions about what it means to turn from the path that leads towards death and turn towards the path that leads towards life in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do that today by faith in him. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let's remember why the message of the gospel is repeated not so often or not only so often as we gather as a church, but also so often in the scriptures. Why is there such a big emphasis on the gospel message? It's because it's actually good news for us. Amen? We not only get to live out the implications of the gospel, But we also have the gospel ministry where we get to tell other beggars how to find the bread of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our aim. That's our charge. And as we reflect on the gospel so much, sometimes we might be tempted to add or even take away from the message of the gospel. That's why the gospel is also repeated so much in the the scriptures. Because God wants it to be clear what is the true message of the gospel and what's not. We don't need to add anything to what the Lord has already said. We don't need to take away the sting of God's wrath, for example. The Lord said that he's made it clear. The Lord didn't call us to edit the message, but simply to 
receive and deliver it to others. That's our aim and our charge. Even for those of you who went to our, our Sunday school class this morning, we had a good reminder of how we do that in handling God's word where we rightly interpret Scripture by thinking of the literary context, the historical context, and even the canonical context. We think of the the Bible in the whole of Scripture. We don't get to interpret God's Word whatever way we want to. We've received God's Word because God's chosen to reveal Himself to us. And guess what? If God did not reveal Himself to us in His Word, we would always get God wrong because we would make God in our own image. So we must be people of God's word. And that's how we can rightly guard the gospel. Let's also remember that the Lord did not only give us a pattern to follow, but he's also given us a path. And that path of the Lord Jesus Christ and his life and ministry was a path of humility. It was a path of suffering. It was a path of complete obedience to the Father. And it was a path of love. That's why Jesus says, don't only follow my words, but follow my ways. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? No, the Lord wants us to obey him and to walk like he walked in this world. And as a church, we aim to follow the Lord Jesus Christ on this narrow path that leads to life together. We exist as a church to make disciples and to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how we collectively glorify God. As it says in Matthew 5, 16, letting our light shine before all men so that they will see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. We are called to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey Notice that the Lord Jesus didn't just say to teach them or to tell them stuff. Teach them to obey. That's our charge. And as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also called to live as his disciples. Means to follow him, meaning to love him and to love our neighbor as he calls us to do in his word. A friend of mine, Caleb Matthews, Uh, grew up in Murphy, North Carolina. Not sure if you've heard of it. It's in western North Carolina, extremely small town. I've been there a few times, and it's one of those towns where literally everybody knows your name. Like, I'm with him. We go to McDonald's. I was like, oh, that's my Sunday school teacher from when I was six years old. That's my old track coach. Like, everybody knows each other, right? So so just, just picture that. But in the midst of this beautiful city with so many different mountains everywhere, there's an amusement park. It's referred to as a Bible amusement park called Fields of the Woods. Now, I know we just moved here. I don't think there's Bible amusement parks in the DMV area, but at least I haven't found it yet. But in this Bible amusement park, right in the center of it, there's what's called the Ten Commandments Mountain, where Along the sides of the mountains, you have the two tables of the law, the Ten Commandments, written out on the sides of the mountain. Like, it's pretty impressive. And there's a path that you walk up to go to the top of that mountain, which me and Caleb did. We climbed up those stairs to go up the top of that mountain. 
And at the top of that mountain, once you get there, there's an open Bible, a giant open Bible, and it's open to Matthew 22, 37 through 40, where it says, or where Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second, is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and all of the prophets. Jesus is saying to us, climb through the scriptures, all of the law, all of the prophets, it all hangs on this. Love God and love your neighbor. That is how we are called to live as followers of Jesus. And that's why Paul is saying here to Timothy, guard the good deposit by following the right pattern of faith and love. So I'll ask, how is your faith this morning, Christian? Some of us might be encouraged in the faith, which is wonderful, but some of us might be discouraged and struggle with a little bit of doubt, maybe uncertainty about the future and what the Lord's going to do, how he's going to provide in so many different ways we could name. But what about your love? Is your love for God overflowing and then being shared with the people around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers? Or does it feel like your love tank has run empty as of late? I think sometimes, and I know I can tend to do this as well, sometimes we can tend to separate our faith and our love from each other as if we're talking about two divergent paths. But our faith shows up in our love. And love for God should strengthen our faith in him. And God has given us the church to be not only the people of faith, but people who are known by our love for one another. That's why as a church, we have not only a statement of faith, but we have a church covenant, faith and love. That's why in the Bible, he calls us to not only watch our lives, or lives but to watch our doctrine. We're called to walk by faith, but we're also called to walk in love. So we should think of the right pattern of our faith and love, not as two separate paths that we can take, but rather more of a right foot and a left foot in which we need both of them to walk rightly in following the Lord on the narrow path. So brothers and sisters, ask the Lord to strengthen your faith in him today. Ask him to give you supernatural love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for your family, love for your neighbors, love even for your enemies. Ask him to help you to forgive those that have sinned against you. Ask him to help you to live and love like Jesus would call us to. God's people guard the gospel with the Holy Spirit's help, not only by following this right path that he's given us, but secondly, by following the right people. And that's our second point. Follow the right people. In the rest of this passage, verses 15 through 18, Paul gives a case study of those who did not rightly guard the gospel by following the right pattern, but then spends the bulk of the time on one person who actually did and who was a good example. So let me read verses 15 through 18 once again. Paul says, you are aware 
that all who are in Asia turn away from me, among whom are Hygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy. May, may the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well all the service that he rendered at Ephesus. So we'll start with Phygelus and Hermogenes, these two men who are being described as among those in all of Asia who would have turned away from Paul. Paul, in other places in this letter, talks about the fact that other people turned away from him as well, and he also names them. But these two are named specifically here because they not only turned away from Paul, but they were likely encouraging others to turn away from Paul's message. Paul's gospel message that he were proclaiming. Or possibly these two were named because their turning away from the gospel, their turning away from Paul, was surprising because of the previous faith that they once proclaimed to have. Either way, I'm sure it would have been painful for Paul to write these words about these two former co-workers in Christ being those who have turned away not only him, but also from the gospel. It seems that these men likely turned away at Paul's final imprisonment. The context of this whole letter is that Paul was arrested for the last time and that he's awaiting a death sentence. So maybe at that point when he was arrested, these people decided we can't follow Paul or his gospel anymore. They were ashamed of his chains and his message. But have you ever wondered how someone could get to that point where they could be sitting in the pews or in the chairs right next to you one year, and then another year they're denouncing the faith that you once claimed to share together? Maybe even more than that, maybe they were once the people who brought you to Christ or led you into the faith or discipled you, and now they're openly mocking that faith that you still claim to hold on to. What do we do about that? As we have the opportunity to interact with these people, and maybe you can name some of these people in your lives, I would encourage us to do so humbly, but also foolishly. Humbly meaning there's a lot going on than those questions that they might bring to the surface. Ask the Lord to reveal what they might be masking just in their bravado or in their speech but also foolishly. Go to them with the foolish message of the gospel. Have no other message for them. Don't seek to add anything. Don't seek to soften the blow. Ask the Lord to use his gospel message to open their hearts and open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel that they once claimed to believe. Ask the Lord to soften their hearts. We can also be warned from this, from this brief example by these two men who turned away from Christ, that we must keep following Christ because we can be led astray as well. It's like in John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the multitudes, after he continued to teach about the fact that he is the bread of life and he is the source of life, that he gives living water, he says hard things to them that they should eat his flesh and drink his blood, talking about his coming death on the cross. 
And that only in that will they find life? And towards the end of that chapter, it says, many of those who once followed him turned away. They said it was a heart saying, we can't do this anymore. And then Jesus asked his disciples, the 12, basically, what are you going to do? And Peter responds by saying, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, only Jesus has the words of eternal life. Keep following him. Keep following his message. Keep following his gospel. And trust that even the things that might be unclear to you right now, that you might be doubting right now, that through following his son, one day it will all make sense. Press on and keep following him. And this should all make us prayerful and careful as we think about our lives, because once again, we can be deceived and we don't want to be deceived. So one thing we should ask ourselves are, who are we listening to? Who are we giving our ears over and over again? What political pundit or what influencer has the ears of your heart? 2023 is almost over, and maybe you've already looked at your either Apple or Spotify end of year where it tells you your stats and your data, who or what you've been listening to for the entire year, right? Some of us, when we see that, we might cringe a little bit, like, I listen to Taylor Swift that much? Like, hmm. But what if, instead of just on a certain streaming network, it was taken collectively At the end of the year, you got a report of all of the people, all the voices that you were listening to, including TV, including entertainment, including sports, including social media, including anything that we watch, including the Lord. If that were the case, where would God and his words stack up? Something we can all consider and think about. And I don't say that to scare anybody. I say that because we all need to be discerning. Because we often give our ears to people who should not have them. We need the Holy Spirit's help. And we need the help of one another so that we can discern. And if we're giving our ears too much to people who are leading us away from Christ, then I think God's word would say that we should turn away from them. And we should listen more to the Lord. We need to also make sure that we're rightly discerning as we're thinking about who we should be listening to. We also need to make sure that we're not distancing ourselves in the, the means of being discerning. We need to make sure that we're not distancing ourselves from people on non-gospel issues. We're not distancing ourselves from other true brothers and sisters in Christ from issues that are not matters of the gospel. Some have even made it their entire ministries and their life purpose to have these discernment vlogs and blogs and videos about every single thing. And the more and more you listen and watch, it's like everybody is wrong except them. We must be careful to make sure we're not even giving those people our attention so our hearts don't grow hard towards our true brothers and sisters in Christ. But it should also instruct us here that Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time on Phygelus and Hermogenes. He moves the spotlight, as it were, 
from this bad and wrong example of these two men to the right example of Onesephorus. And he spends more time talking about them. And in getting some thoughts about this text, our brother Ryan Payne shared this with me. So thank you in advance, Ryan. He said this, Our Christian faith does not need to be defined by those who oppose us, but by those who are in the family of God. A good word, brother. So Onesephorus here is mentioned by Paul as one, as an example, who would have rightly guarded the gospel. He was a co-laborer with Paul, who Timothy also likely knew by name. That's why he names him. Since Timothy would have been aware of his service at the church of Ephesus. And he was probably sent out by Timothy and others to go to Rome to look for Paul and help him in his imprisonment. Onesephorus was not ashamed of the gospel, and nor was he ashamed of Paul and his chains. That's why it says in verse 17 that when he arrived in Rome, he searched for Paul earnestly. Now again, if you're in prison in first century Rome, that meant that you could not survive unless you, were, unless you had people who helped to look after your physical needs. You've gotten a little bit of help, and Paul would have gotten a little bit of help being a citizen of Rome, but his ongoing survival needed help from his brothers and sisters in Christ to bring him food, to bring him supplies, to bring him even some of the things that he asked for at the end of this letter, to give him company. So if Onesephorus went to search for Paul, he would have to go, to go around to these underground dungeons, searching, looking, knocking, asking for Paul to see when he would come up. He was associating himself with Paul in doing so, probably putting himself in harm's way by doing so. And yet he still did it until he found him, as Paul says in this passage. And when he found him, Paul says that he was refreshed by him. He says that he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. My wife, Erlene, has a bit of a green thumb. She likes gardening, and she's good at it. My thumb is not green at all. But I've watched her over the years and observed things that seem miraculous to me that are basic common sense when it comes to plants and other things that are in the house, right? So if a plant is wilted, it's like, oh, babe, this looks like it's going to die. I guess we should get rid of it. It's like, no, it just needs some water some sunlight, and then after a day or two, it just sprouts back to life. It was refreshed because it had the right water. It was given new life again. Brothers and sisters, if you feel like your faith is wilting today, where are you going to go to find refreshment for it? You should be refreshed by the word of God. You should be refreshed by your brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's pray and ask the Lord that we would continue to be a church that seeks to refresh one another, not condemn one another, that we may encourage one another as we struggle in our faith. And in doing so, we are guarding the gospel as well because we're not allowing our brothers and sisters in Christ to remain discouraged. We encourage one another as we long for the day that we get to see our Lord face to face. And so our faith becomes 
sight. And we should follow brothers and sisters who are willing to refresh one another like that. In our church, we have elders and deacons and small group leaders and so many of you who are not in any of those roles, but who are models to follow, who come here with the goal of encouraging people. We all need that. People who love the Lord, love God's word, love God's people, love their families, love their neighbors. People who love this church. May I encourage you, if you haven't found someone like that, start looking today to find someone that can refresh you in the Lord. Kids and teens in the room, can any of you name, say, two or three character traits of someone that is worth following? A good Christian example, one phrase that would describe them or define them about something that's someone that's worth following. Olivia? Caring, okay. One or two more. Adam? Integrity? One more. Bridget? Trustworthy. Caring. Integrity. Trustworthy. There's so many more things that we can name and add to that, right? Kids and teens in the room, if you haven't found someone like that to follow, start looking today. Those people are all around you. Ask them good questions. Ask them how they deal with things that you're starting to deal with. See how they respond to trials and follow them as they follow Christ. For our college students and young adults, find someone whose faith is worth following and modeling your life after. You might look around this room or look around this church and think, all these people are so busy. They've got like a thousand kids. They got a bunch of different things going on. That might be true. I would encourage you, barge into their lives. Barge into our lives. We want that. And if this is someone that's worth following, they will welcome that and they will welcome you. Take the first step and see what the Lord's going to do through it. What was so special about Onesephorus? Like he, he went after Paul, he, he refreshed Paul in some way, he was encouraging, he looked for him to give him food and supplies and things that would have been helpful. But what would have been the one phrase that would have categorized Onesephorus? I think we get a clue to that in thinking through the two ways that Paul prays for his household and also for him in verses 16 and 18. And it's the word mercy. In verse 16, Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesephorus. Paul here was likely recognizing that, that Onesephorus would have left behind his family members and loved ones in order to serve Paul in this sacrificial way and visiting him in Rome. And then in verse 18, he says, For him to find mercy from the Lord on that last day. So, Lord, you be merciful to their family. Lord, help this brother to find mercy from you on that last day. But I think what stood out about this brother was his mercy. He was merciful to Paul by seeking after him when others had turned away. He was merciful to the saints at, at uh, Ephesus by the way that he served them. He modeled what the Lord Jesus Christ taught 
in Matthew chapter 5, 7, where he says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We can follow this example of mercy shown by Onesephorus by looking after the spread of the gospel, by looking after gospel workers. We can do this as a church by continuing to pray for and supporting the missionaries that our church supports. And in doing so, we're helping them to guard the gospel. We're helping them to follow the right path. We're helping them to model for others who they should follow as they are following Christ. God wants us to follow the right pattern and the right people. And as we do that, he wants us to know that his Holy Spirit is the one that's guarding his gospel. And we'll make sure that it's guarded until the last day. He gives us these paths to follow and these people to follow. But he doesn't want us to forget that ultimately his Holy Spirit is doing the guarding. Since throwing of the acid on that Mona Lisa painting that I talked about earlier. It has also had a ceramic cup thrown at it and a piece of cake thrown at it. All of these were attempts to either damage or defame this famed painting. But the ceramic cup that was thrown was broken itself. The cake that was thrown afterwards, it was just wiped off. That's because the Mona Lisa has been encased with a thick, bulletproof glass since the 1950s. And this glass is mounted within the walled-off structure of the museum, which basically means you can't get to it. You can't get close to the Mona Lisa as much as you want it to. You can see it from a distance. Throw cake if you want, but it's not going to harm the painting. And this glass was the unseen guardian or hero protecting the painting of the Mona Lisa. And brothers and sisters, our gospel message is so much more valuable than this painting. The Mona Lisa will one day be irrelevant or it will just fade away. All the things in this life that we treasure will become irrelevant or they will just fade away. And even our lives will end and fade away. But those who are in Christ are guarded by the Holy Spirit. This gospel message is guarded by this unseen guardian who will make sure that this message is proclaimed and guarded until that last day. So be encouraged, church. The Holy Spirit has guarded the good deposit of the gospel for the past 2,000 years, and he's been doing a great job at it. And he will keep it guarded to the last day. In the meantime, may we be people who follow the pattern of faith and love and will also follow the right people that will help us to guard the gospel as well. Let me pray for us. Lord, we need your help to guard your glorious gospel so, that we, so we ask that you would give it. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of the local church, for this church. We thank you for your word. Lord, help us to be people that are actively, intentively guarding the glorious good news of your gospel but not in our own strength, doing so, trusting that you will ultimately guard your gospel until that last day. Help us to walk by faith, but also walk in love as we seek to be people that are worth following. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.